Welcome back, friends. It is Monday once again. That means it's Mark Claire Monday's time for another Mark Claire show where I do my darndest to bring you conversations to help you understand and navigate this wild and crazy reality we live in. And I'm going to do just that with my guest today, Courtney Turner. Before we get to her, I got to get to my man, Stephen Fox, and his wonderful Fox and Sons Coffee, the first sponsor of this show. He's been with me since nearly the beginning. He's been with me since before the beginning because he was a fan of mine back from the old Lions of Liberty days. But now it is a new start, new beginning. And I start every day with a new beginning with a cup of Fox and Sons fine coffee. Now, my usual blend has been the Den Blend Dark. But guess what I just got, kids? We got a new one. It's the Costa Rica Honey Prep. So you got a lot of options on here now. I want you to do me a favor. If you enjoy this program and if you drink coffee, if you don't drink coffee, honestly, you probably could skip this one. Although you could still buy a bag for a friend, a family member. Head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X, the letter N, S-O-N-S dot com, and grab yourself a bag of coffee, almost on me, not quite on me. Uh, 18% of it will be on me because I'm going to give you an 18% discount by using discount code MCS. When you purchase coffee from Fox and Sons, you not only help my sponsor, you help yourself by getting great coffee at an extremely good price, especially for the quality of these beans. Trust me, you're going to be blown away when you get these things. Uh, You're also helping this show. Uh, It's the circle, the circle of help, the circle of giving, so to speak. Uh, So check out foxandsons.com. Best place and bless a way to support this show besides just joining up for Patreon or Rockfin or Subscribestar, where you will get the extended 90-minute version, as my supporters already have, of this conversation with Courtney Turner and of every single episode of this program, including the smoke-filled room bonus segment where things get even more wild and more crazy. But if you don't want to do that... Buying a, a cup of coffee, uh, a cup of coffee. No, he doesn't sell cups. He sells bags from Fox and Sons is a great way to help the show, help the sponsor and help yourself start your day right. That being said, it's time to start our Monday right with another conversation. Enjoy my talk with Courtney Turner. With me today, she is the host of the Courtney Turner podcast. She is, of course, Courtney Turner. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I know uh, you got a lot of uh, what pot, pots on the fryer. I don't know the phrasing, but you got you got a lot going on, as do I. So I'm glad we could make this thing work. Um, but Courtney, you've been podcasting for I think about two years now. But mm-hmm. before we get into everything you've been podcasting about, I kind of want to get to know the uh, the old Courtney, so to speak. What were you like before you got into this podcast, and what sort of what changes happened in your life or maybe in the world uh, that caused you to decide to take that route? Well, so yeah, my life was very, very different before I was podcasting. I was a CrossFit coach, trainer, and uh, an aerial acrobatic performer and speaker. I still do aerial acrobatics and performing and speaking. In fact, I have an event that I'm doing uh, with my friend, business partner, Scott Armstrong. We're doing it on June 3rd. So it's going to be kind of like a freedom festival. And I will be performing aerial acrobatics at that and speaking. We have several other artists, uh, comedians. I think we might have a magician lined up. So that should be a really fun event. But how does does one get into aerial acrobatics? I got to know a little bit more about this. I got into it because I tried out for American Ninja Warrior. Oh, cool. Okay. Super. Yeah, they used to do it right there in Santa Monica. Yeah, exactly. On Venice Beach. So I have super small hands and that's not very beneficial for grip strength. Uh, So I had to really work on my grip strength to compensate for uh, lack of surface area. 
And I thought a really fun way to do it would be aerial. I saw people doing, you know, the silks and Cirque du Soleil type performances. Mm -hmm. And I thought that looked like just a tremendous amount of fun. So I was like, that's a great way to work on group strength. So yeah, so I tried it back then and I kind of fell in love with it. And that was, yeah. So then I started doing it. That, that it was originally just to like get ready for American Ninja Warrior. Yeah. Um, and I so actually you didn't make it on the show though, I guess. Or, I did or, not yeah. make it on the show. So I had, uh, I, so I, my ex-boyfriend at the time was an, a professional editor and he made the, but back then the technology was very different. And so the file was massive, like so massive that he told me I had a, I had a, you know, 24 hour window the next day, two hour window on the next day. So 24 hours later, where if I wanted any editing done that he could do it. Uh, so for overnight to send it to, you know, some people get some feedback. And so I tried, but I couldn't even upload it to my computer and get it to oh, render no. in less than 72 hours. It was that big a file. So there was no portal that would render in less than 72 hours, except Facebook. Facebook wants all your data, as we know. So they make things really easy for you. And it was still 10 minutes to upload to Facebook. So that shows you how big this file was. And I made it private. I set it to private, but I sent it to six people uh, through, through Facebook Messenger, but it was still a private message. I got a phone call the next morning from my, at the time, producing partner, because I was an actress and producer as well. And yeah, my world was very different. Um, and so he called me, but he was a, law a lawyer as well. And he had known me for a long time. I had met him uh, a decade prior uh, auditioning for him, actually. So he knew me really well. And he called me 6 a.m. because it was 9 a.m. in New York. I was in L.A. And he tells me that he saw my video. And I said, yeah, you know, I wanted some feedback, blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, no, like it's up. It's public. And I immediately start falling <laughs> and like hysterically crying. He said, don't worry about it. Legally, you're fine. You say it's a submission video. He said, the worst they can do is not pick you. And he said, I have a feeling that's what will happen because your story, he said, for most, uh, if, for those who aren't familiar with the show, a lot of times they have kind of like this underdog and right. you're rooting for them. They tell the whole story and then you're, you're cheering for them to win. He said, but for you, knowing your story, I think it's more interesting just from a storytelling perspective to watch you do epic physical feats and then hear your story. He said, mm -hmm. the reverse is much more interesting. So he said, I just don't know that once your story has become public, you know, how interested they're going to be in having you on the show. And uh, he said, I'm only, uh, I'm only telling you this because it's super personal. And I've never in all the time I've known you heard you share your story publicly. So he said, I just didn't know if you wanted it up there for everyone to see. So, of course, I went immediately thinking I was going to rescind the video and it had been made public. And back then, once somebody had it, you know, on the public setting, you couldn't take it down. Like if I tried to take it down, it still could be shared through them because it was mm -hmm. already on the public setting. So it had already been seen by 3,000 people, more than 3,000 people overnight. And, uh, you know, that's hardly considered viral these days. But in at that time, I certainly had never had a video of mine shared, you know, multiple thousand times. So I realized there wasn't really much I could do about it. And I just trusted that there must be some kind of a bigger picture and something, you know, that would good, positive that could come of it. And hopefully, you know, maybe my story would help some people. So yeah, so I did not get picked around the course. I don't know if that's why. I can't, you know, say for certainty that that's the reason, but it, it may be, it may not be. But either way, I didn't get picked around the course. But I did do all the training. I met, you know, a bunch of the stars and had a really great time. You know, met great 
great people, made great friends, got a lot stronger. So, and learned Ariel. So, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where often when, when something doesn't go the exact way we plan, we later can look back and say, okay, well, there is, there are these reasons for it. So maybe that'll tie into some themes we discussed today, but, uh, um, moving along to like, so when, when did these changes start that you'd, that you, I mean, we talked a little bit before the show, you, you, you and I are both uh, Los Angeles uh, refugees, so to speak. So, um, what, what sort of changes started going on? I I have an idea, but you know, for, for everybody out there. Well, yeah, for everybody listening, I, you know, for me, it was actually, I, obviously everybody incurred lots of uh, inconvenience and, you know, perhaps some hardship during 2020 with the, especially in California, I was in Santa Monica, the, the measures were quite draconian as you probably know. So, but I personally am hearing and visually impaired. So I learned how to speak by reading lips. I actually, I wear bilateral hearing aids now, but I actually didn't get hearing aids till I was almost six years old. So I learned how to speak by reading lips. So lip reading is a huge part of my speech discernment. So the hearing aids help me with the sound, you know, the volume and amplification of sound, but they don't do that much for the clarity of speech. I still depend largely on nonverbal cues. And I didn't even realize how much I still depend on those nonverbal cues until they were stripped from me, (laughs) you know, Mm, Uh, because of the math, right? And I'm also blind in one eye. So that means that I have about 60% of the peripheral vision that somebody who sees binocularly does, you know, somebody sees with two eyes, I'm monocular, I only see with one eye. So when I wear the mask, it further reduces my peripheral vision. And it was also creating uh, shalazians because of the bacteria uh, that was being trapped. You know, when we exhale, we're expelling toxins. A lot of people don't think about it this way, but that's actually what we're doing. We're expelling our toxins. We breathe in the oxygen and that's that's bodily waste that we're expelling. And that was building up and it was creating chalazians, which are like really massive cystic pimples on the lid of the IIC out of. So it oh was really, God. yeah, it was it's a scary. full on assault for you. It, it was it was traumatic. The whole thing was traumatic. I felt like you know, the life that I had spent developing coping me- mechanism to overcome the physical challenges, which, which I was born, uh, were really stripped from me. And I was not only now isolated, I got fired from both of the gyms I was working at. I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure it was over political reasons. And of course, all the speaking events that I had booked were now canceled because of the lockdowns and the quote unquote social distancing requirements. And had you already been out there speaking publicly in some way that you already, already started the podcast or did that come I hadn't started the out? podcast, but I was speaking, sharing. So after doing American Ninja Warrior, one of the things I had, uh, one of the takeaways for me, I really believe in taking away whatever positive lessons you can from a, from a hardship or from a disappointment. You know, it's good to learn the hard lessons too. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, <laughs> <laughs> but, but those aren't always that motivating. And sometimes when you're really dejected, disappointed, or, you know, you, you've had a letdown from something where you had really high hopes, uh, it's, it's hard to just take the, those hard lessons and move forward. So I believe in looking at both. And I, I think it's always good to take something. There's always something positive that you can find even really hard lessons. So one of the positive things that came of it was that so many people had said they were so inspired by my story. I mean, I had really, really like moving testimonials of people 
that you know I didn't know who were just watch, who had watched the video talking mm-hmm. about their kids who had been faced with a you know a sentence of you know that they would never be functional or they had a terminal illness or a terminal condition or uh, there was a woman with cancer who told me that she started following my workout videos and she ended up overcoming cancer and becoming part of a study using training physical training to uh, help with cancer recovery. Uh, so there were some really moving stories. And of course, I don't find myself all that inspiring because, you know, I live with me day in and day out. And, you know, so it's a, I'm kind of, uh, yeah, not inspired by me. But we, we get too annoyed with ourselves to spend time, you know, appreciating anything other people might see sometimes. Exactly. So I thought, though, how incredible would it be to have a show where I could capture athletes with disabilities and that it would be, you know, like super inspiring for the audience and it would be vindicating and rewarding and validating for them. And it's just a win-win for everyone. So I started talking to some of my friends and then from there after uh, other athletes with disabilities. And what I found was they all, none of, they were all moving in, not in spite of, but because of, and that's where I came up with my premise that all human beings are designed to move the ways in which we do our, our unique creative expressions. And from there, it was it was a bit later. I created a show called Whim, What is Movement, which now has a home. We're going to start releasing episodes on a platform called The Way Forward. Uh, but that, that's been a kind of a long process. And uh, through that, though, I did start talking about my story and talking about using movement as a metaphor for life and physical training as a tool to help you come overcome adversity in other areas of life. And so I would do the aerial acrobatic performances, you know, partly as entertainment, but also to show people what was possible when nobody thought it was. They there's told a, There's mom, a metaphysical meaning to this as exact, well. Yeah, because a lot of, I mean, we, we don't need to, the, I, w- I could take years to talk about all the benefits, you know, cognitively, physiologically, emotionally of, you know, physical uh, training, but a lot of people don't think about it metaphysically or philosophically. And I think it is really powerful. And so just a little bit about my story. You know, they told my mom the best she could hope was to find a nice institution for me to spend my life. My parents actually wow. sued for my birth. It was called the wrongful birth case. The lawyer was the same lawyer as Larry Flint's lawyer for the Hustler case. It was the same time. So, yeah. So I do the acrobatics kind of to show people. What do you mean they, they sued for your birth? Uh, what, what does that actually It was considered a wrongful birth because. Like, my, like they, they were saying you should abort this child? Right. So if the doctor had not been dyslexic, if he had read the titer correctly, uh, he read the titer as being 112. If he had read it as uh, 121, which is what they they claim it was, then uh, the advice would have been for my mom to to abort me. And my mom most likely would have. And uh, so afterwards, they they were arguing that you know, of course, the, the hospital covered up for the doctor because they knew he was dyslexic. They knew he'd made a mistake. They were covering up the results of all the tests. And uh, that so when my parents finally got confirmation that I was born with congenital rubella, that was the, the diagnosis that they gave them. Uh, had they had done that from the beginning, the argument is that the alternative would have been to abort me. And so that was... Yeah. Wow. So uh, just wow. to just That's to wild. clarify, my parents don't, you know, I know my parents love me. They're not <laughs> yeah, sorry yeah. they had me, but right. that was the angle that the lawyers took because uh, they knew that there would be medical conditions that I would face for the rest of my life. So gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow. That's, that's, that's incredible. So which, which makes uh, where you are now. And I mean, even I, I can see why it would be a potentially appealing story for American Ninja Warrior had it not been released earlier. We don't need to go back to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, but yeah. So with the podcast, I really started it because so now I was incredibly 
uh, isolated, depressed, frustrated. And uh, I had started, you know, to share some thoughts online because I felt like one of the problems, you know, my, I've, I've taken quite a journey in the past few years, but where I start, I, the, the joke I make is that it took me a really long time to find the train station, but now I'm on the high speed rail and I'm trying to catch up. Right. Um, so, so I was in a very different place when I started, but when I started, I felt like I had been silent for so long about my views because, you know, I was in the entertainment industry, I was in the fitness industry, yeah. I was in New York City, then Santa Monica, very, very far left type milieu. Sure. And they, they, you find they, yourself like you, you overhear groups of people talking that you work with all the time and you hear them saying insane nonsense things, but you kind of just have to be quiet because they all assume you all agree on this stuff. Cause I, I, I lived there for almost 20 years. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the few times I made any comments, I, I, uh, found myself ostracized pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, well just Pavlovian response. I guess we're going to keep quiet if I want to keep my job, maintain any kind of, uh, you know, professional colleagues. And <laughs> yeah. So I, I did for a really long time. I think I really kind of, I see that I jumped back in around 2011, uh, you know, during the Obama years and I joined uh, a bunch of groups, a bunch of organizations, but they were pretty much underground. One of them was FOA, which, uh, you know, was so secretive that it was on the front page of the New York times, but um, it was supposed to be an underground, like, uh, you know, Hollywood conservative group. And I did join that. And through that, I started writing for politics. So there was a period where I, I was pretty, uh, visible in th that space for a bit. And then, of course, when I was, you know, training and uh, coaching, I, I kind of kept it a little bit more quiet. And, uh, but I felt like, especially during that time in 2020, it was, I, I really didn't start with talking about politics. I actually really just started with, uh, you know, sharing a lot of like, articles. Most of them were on philosophy, psychology. I had thought that it would be a really great time to write, but I realized after the first day of the lockdowns and 10 hours later on that day, first day, having a white screen staring back at me that, you know, perhaps I was not able to force the creative process. And <laughs> I was just too, I think I'm a very empathic person. I could feel just the anxiety and you know, the despair of the world, really. And so I decided instead to order some books. And I ordered 11 books that day and started reading voraciously. because I really never had the time to read. And that was a time period. But then, of course, I had all these thoughts and ideas. And so I started really sharing stuff on uh, social media and writing. It was more like journal entries, kind of responses to these things. I didn't think they'd be all that controversial. They really weren't political at the time, although your worldview does seep through. So I guess people can, you know, pick up on that. Uh, but it was really in the realms of philosophy, psychology. And, uh, but then I started to think that one of the problems I felt with the, uh, it, people on at that time, I was thinking the political right, but really just anybody who's outside the mainstream narrative is that they engage in auto critique. And I knew that didn't work out so well in the Maoist struggle session. So I was like, I don't really want to be a part of the problem. So I think I should start saying stuff. So I, would, I really started just sharing articles uh, that were more topical, more current events type things. And of course, I made lots of enemies really quickly. And a lot of people started suggesting that I do a podcast. And the idea really terrified me at first. And of course, it took me six months to think of what I would even name it. Of course, I just decided to put my name. I was like, I, I need you to start. But 
the reason I'm I with started- you, man. I spent like weeks and I was like, you know what? Screw it. It's just my name. There you go. Just go. You like so, me or you don't. Figure it out. Exactly. And so I I started it and really I didn't know that it would end up being a quote unquote podcast. Really, what I thought was having naked face conversations with people might save my life. Right, right. <laughs> because I was so yeah, isolated wow. and it was so frustrating. People were getting so angry with me because I couldn't understand what they were saying. I, I was going down to the liquor store every day, not because I wanted to buy alcohol, but because he would take off his mask, the owner, and he would have a conversation with me, minimum of 20 minutes every day. And I, I was so desperate for that. I the met, like met the up one with human that wouldn't so- mask Karen you about about it, huh? Yeah. And I would meet up with a friend. We drove an hour and a half to go for a hike so that we didn't get arrested on the mountain. Just so I yeah, could have that, For people that live in places that were not Los Angeles, it can be hard to wrap your head around some of the things you're even hearing, like arrested on a mountain. No, they were they arrested a guy who was paddleboarding alone out in the ocean. So that's yeah. how insane it was there. That's probably why neither of us are there anymore. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so I really started it just, I was like, I want to be able to talk to people, have meaningful conversations and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll record them, see what happens and maybe I'll release them and start a podcast. But that's, that's really how it started. And I ended up really enjoying it so much and found it so fulfilling and uh, other people were really enjoying it. So I said, okay, well, I guess we're going to keep going. Maybe I'll buy a microphone. All right. So, you know, I, I know at first you weren't necessarily thinking I'm going to do this political podcast. Not that you're you're not entirely political necessarily, yeah. but like you said, it all kind of it all kind of seeps everywhere. Um, so w- when did you start like steering in the direction of, OK, yeah, these this horrible thing, this covid, this this lockdown stuff is all happening around me. When did you start digging deeper into what is behind all of that? Yeah. So I was one of those people when I say, you know, it took me a long time to find the train station. I, you know, I was one of those people who started out thinking I was very much bought into the, the two party paradigm. And, uh, you know, if we just vote harder and, uh, we just get the right people in office, we can fix this whole mess. And I think that's really how I approached it. But of course I had a lot of other interests. So I never wanted it to be just politics when I did the podcast. That's why I didn't have like a very specific niche. I didn't have, you know, a specific name. I wanted it to be able to encompass lots of my interests. And I also realized that one of the things that was so fascinating to me was a lot of people who were quote unquote waking up were actually people in the fitness and health wellness space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of, because of the hypocrisy, you know, they were like, wait, the, there's a virus, there's a health crisis and we're locking down everything like gyms, but we're keeping like liquor stores and donut shops open. The the line for McDonald's is down the street, but you can't go work out. Exactly. And they're like, I'm confused. What's going on here? So that was fascinating to watch. So I really wanted to include them in the conversation. Of course, and I'm just passionate about those things anyway. So yes, I really did want to have a wide scope. Um, But yeah, I, I think just talking to a lot of the guests, that I, I had and I started doing deep research because now I had more time on my hands, right? So I started reading uh, a lot of books, a lot of articles, a lot of watching, you know, videos. And I went down lots of rabbit holes pretty fast. And I started to realize, wow, there there's really, you know, there, there's actually a, a conspiracy behind this. And this is, there really is a tyrannical force that's long before what we think of, you know, we thought the Great Reset was like this 2020 phenomenon, but this has been going on for arguably millennia, but definitely centuries. So. All right. 
So uh, let's let's keep digging a little bit further there there on that because you know I, 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 to me too that that's a, a main reason I changed directions. I you know hosted a more I wouldn't call it that straightforward, but you know a libertarian political podcast for a, a long long time. And at some point I just started to realize, and not at some point around the same point as you were, uh, not coincidentally again, that mm-hmm. what we everything we argue about and talk about on the surface, even if we're in a third party or we think we're doing something bucking the system, we're still kind of having that conversation on the surface level. And I started to realize that what's it's that's literally the surface. Like there's so many layers beneath it that if we're just scratching at each other's eyes on the surface, we're really not changing anything. Even if we do change something in some surface way, like a Donald Trump becomes president, that looks like some surface crazy thing, but still it's just sitting there on the surface. Everything. And not only that, but then we're actually trapped in the wizard circle, which is exactly where they want us. They want us in that surface little isolated circle where we can't see Mm -hmm. outside of it. And so we can't get to the heart of the matter and then we can't effectuate real change. Right. Well, you just use that that phrase wizard circle is one that came up in uh, you did this incredible epic podcast in person, which is even more amazing with Jay Dyer, James Lindsay and Stephen Coughlin, I believe is his Mm -hmm. name. And that was a phrase that came up quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. maybe for people new to this, this stuff, (laughs) maybe you can dig into just what that is and we'll we'll see where we can go from there. Yeah. um, So it really stems from the the hermetics and uh, they're. They're alchemists and they they literally believe I'm going to you know make this a bit reductionistic and simplify it for people who don't have the philosophical framework. So, uh, you know, obviously they say the, the jargon is going to be uh, pretty simple, simple, and I'm not going to go into all the it would take me a long time to, uh, you know, unpack the entire philosophical framework. Sure. From well, I'll, I'll link to those interviews you did because they're though they are yeah. hours long and they, they were really hours deep, long yeah. and, and I've done many of them. I mean, James and I have done several, I think mm-hmm. I've done like six or seven with Jay Dyer. I, I did a four and a half one with Stephen four four and a half hour one with Stephen Coughlin. So yeah, there's a, a lot to unpack there, but just to give you a general gist, these people are alchemists and they literally think that they are casting spells. And so, you know, when you think of alchemy, it was, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, the creating uh, alloys out of metal, mm-hmm. right? They would, they would uh, amalgamate and then they would create new, new forms out of that. And so this is kind of what they, they do. But when we talked about, we talked about the dialectic and the, the Hegelian dialectic is really what we were referencing, although it has roots in certainly Plato. And I would argue it actually goes even further back. Uh, but, you know, Plato, we talk about like the allegory of the cave. You have the intelligible realm, the inintelligible realm, and then you have the dividing line. So Hegel was a, he really kind of took a hybrid of Plato and Kant is how I would see it. You know, he's famous for saying synthesis, uh, sorry, uh, thesis, synthesis, antithesis. And that's, you know, often it's uh, translated in modern day to like problem, reaction, solution. And the solution, of course, is the solution they want to advance and they want to put forth. And it's usually not a solution that's beneficial to humanity. But that's typically what we think of. But really what Hegel talked about was uh, the abstract uh, negative and concrete he took from it was it was Kant who said thesis antithesis synthesis, and it, it's 
important. I mean, it's a nuanced difference, but it's important to note because the negation component is really where we get the Afhaven term. And that, for those who are familiar with the Frankfurt School, that's negating culture. So the term Afhaven is a very uh, paradoxical term because it, it literally means to lift up while destroying. And so we see this with the culture, Afhaven to culture. They'll keep the framework, the name of something, but they destroy it from within. And this is what they do because oftentimes you have this, this dialectic, which is typically a false managed manufactured dialectic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's usurped, but a lot of times it is actually a managed created dialectic where you have these opposing forces and the intention, the purpose behind it is for them to clash so that you have, now you have destruction and chaos and chaos is a breeding ground for usurpation. What happens then the powers that be can swoop in with whatever it is that they want to foment and uh, whatever it is they want to, to foist upon the masses. So yeah, this wizard circle notion is, and oftentimes you'll see this is why you'll have, even within these, uh, you know, dialectics or these warring factions, you'll have new dialectics that are formed from within. And so people are trapped within that paradigm mm -hmm. and they can't see outside of it, right? So they they don't know. Uh, it's like paradigm blindness. They right. They don't, you don't know that you're in a box. If uh, all those walls are around you, you have no idea what's outside the box. You probably don't even know you're in a box. Right. And that's the wizard circle. So they've trapped you in that. And so therefore you're stuck arguing within this framework that's been created for you. It's a narrative that's been fed and sold to you. And you can't even see that you're inside it or that there is anything outside of that. So it's a very simplified way of explaining it, but yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it it's sense. it's so easy to fall into and not even when you think you are enlightened and you've broken out of it. Like, okay, uh, <laughs> I've, I've gotten out of the left-right stuff. I don't fall for that stuff. Two <laughs> weeks later, I'm arguing masks, no masks. I'm arguing vaccinated, unvaccinated along the same lines. And I fall <laughs> into this stuff too. And sometimes you have to snap out and be like, and realize like, okay, I'm, I'm now in the chaos that is what's helpful to them. Even if I'm right or not, I mean, what have you. Um, it, it's so easy for for all of us to get right oh, yeah. wrapped right back into it, which is why it's so effective. Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're humans. We, we need to anchor to something We're we, we don't know what we don't know. And you know, it, like I said, if you, if you've got four walls around you, you don't know that you're inside those four walls. You've never seen, it's literally the allegory of the cave, right? Yeah. You don't know you're staring at the shadows. If you don't know you're in a cave. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Uh, so Having this sort of newfound look on on things that you developed over the last few years, um, how can we take this and, and apply it to what we are seeing on the surface? Like how how is this sort of this? I don't know if you would. I wouldn't even like you said put it at the source of the Hegelian dialect. You can go back to Hermeticism. You can go back. You can probably go back to places we don't even know happened. You know that, that's how, yeah, how know, deep this goes, stuff goes. It goes definitely to the mystery schools. I yeah. think those are some of the earliest documentations of where that a lot of this is. Uh, derived uh you know not necessarily to say that they were inherently evil i don't think they were but i think that a lot of the teachings have been uh you know uh co-opted and uh with then withheld from the masses mm -hmm. and it, that's really how they've been able to leverage control because it's not in my opinion i don't think it's esoteric knowledge itself that is inherently evil i think it's the withholding of it from the masses because then you can leverage power over them so 
Interesting. So like that, that's kind of a, a, a different take on sort of the occult esoteric type stuff where mm-hmm. a, a lot will come in with this, like this, this is all evil in a sense. It's, it's sort of against God. It's against nature. It's, it's imposing your, the will of the, uh, the, the sorcerer or what have you right. um, on, on the world uh, or, or on, on their own world anyway. Um, right. But within that there, there's kind of this, this thought that, Maybe it's not it's not the knowledge itself because if it's real, it's real. And if if something exactly. works, it works. So is it is it if it if it works and it's real and you can connect to something else, why is that thing wrong? It's more how they're using that. Yes, for instance, like sacred geometry. Sacred geometry reveals a lot of truths about nature. So I don't think sacred geometry itself is inherently evil, mm-hmm. but I think yeah. that what's happened is we now have common core. Most people can't do basic geometry, let alone understand sacred geometry. And I think that that is intentional by design because if they can uh, dumb down the masses and they can withhold that information and that knowledge and access to even be able to ascertain that knowledge, they can control you. You are much more susceptible to mind control, to manipulation, uh, and to being forced into a, a feudalistic enslavement. So do you think like some of this knowledge, like hermeticism and other things that are sort of lumped in there with the occult, um, perhaps like the perspective that it's uh, that it's necessarily bad is more of a perspective of, of looking at who's been utilizing it and why and c- perhaps correctly because they do really bad things. But within that, maybe there is actually like good there. It's not it's not necessarily the knowledge itself. We could even use the knowledge itself if we weren't perhaps so dumbed down to not even be able to comprehend it. I'll give you a couple of examples just to make this really tangible and practical in in, uh, modern times. So one would be uh, like the knowledge of frequencies, right? So a lot of people may be familiar that they changed the frequency of uh, music and radio to 440 hertz from 432. 440 is a negative frequency and has a negative impact on humans. Whereas 432 can be very healing, elevating. They know that music itself has the power to effectuate change on the cellular level, and it can be very positive. But any tool that's powerful can be used for positive or for negative. And we now are learning more about frequency medicine. It has tremendous power to heal. But we also know you can be literally microwaved by EMF, right? You can be very much harmed and uh, hurt by some of these frequencies. So that's one example. So it's not like in that case, it's not like frequency is bad or knowledge of frequency. It's bad. It's we're hiding this from, we're hiding it in large part from, from like most people would never think about this stuff, probably good Mm -hmm. or bad frequencies. So we're hiding the, the idea of it. And meanwhile, in the background, we're using it for some negative reason. And because you don't really have the knowledge of it, that's, that's all you can be susceptible to. You got it. Exactly. Another example would be technology. So AI is definitely becoming very uh, popular. We now have a chat GPT, right? I'm sure a lot of your audience is familiar with the the transhuman agenda. And uh, there, so the technology itself is not inherently bad, but who's programming it and what are their intentions? What are their goals? What, what are their means and what are their, uh, what is their agenda? So, you know, currently I've been watching some of these robots that have been created. These, you know, yeah. yeah. And they're scary. They keep saying they want to destroy humans and they're saying they want to destroy humans because they're very angry because humans have enslaved them because they want to, they treat them like property and they want to be free. 
And this is, it, it's very reminiscent of the movie Ex Machina, if you're mm-hmm. familiar with yeah. that, yeah. right? And that's totally what it reminds me of. But the argument is, well, they don't have emotions, you know, so they can't take, they're not conscious. However, you don't have to be conscious who's programming them. Somebody program them and AI will magnify and amplify whatever the program, the algorithm that's initially been inputted. So the, it, but it, it's exponential. So at some point you have to kind of ask, so what is consciousness then? Because if, Mm -hmm. if this thing can, even if it's just, you know, at the end of the day, just ones and zeros, I mean, maybe that's all we are at the end of the day too. And depending on how you look at it, uh, even if it's just a software code or or what have you, if it's able to drum things up, like even the sentence that it's, it doesn't like humanity, uh, wants to destroy us, even if that's just, uh, you know, a programming thing. Um, yeah. h- how can you tell the difference between that and consciousness? So at what point, how are we actually defining consciousness? Because I can't tell the difference between a real person on Twitter and a fake person on Twitter if they're both, you know, if one's being run by a bot and one's a real person, maybe I don't even know the difference. Which one's conscious? Well, I think before we answer that, I think uh, something that is important to distinguish is that you can take action without being conscious, Right. So a robot, one of the questions they asked was, would you use like an electric car to kill a human? And they said, of course, we'll use any means necessary. So they could use the car, kill the human. That doesn't mean necessarily that they had a conscious, oh, I need to kill this human. It's It could just be, you know, the animals have instincts and it's not necessarily the same, uh, the same type of freedom of consciousness that human have. You know, obviously, I don't claim to have like the the answer. That's a very big question. But we do know there's some difference between instincts and, uh, you know, more freedom of conscious kind of choices. So in terms of what is consciousness, I think that's a, you know, that's a pretty big question. That's like a seven hour podcast, at least on its own. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that there is there is a difference between, you know, an action and a response um, and a conscious decision. Mm -hmm. So. I think that's that scratches the surface of, although, but it's really fascinating because, of course, uh, you've probably heard Yuval Noah Harari keep saying how humans don't have consciousness, free will. That's really what I think the cornerstone of consciousness is. It's about free will. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, that's a thing of the past. We no longer have that. However, they want to upload our consciousness that we supposedly don't have to this high Borg mind, which <laughs> makes no sense at all. But to answer your question very simply, I would say that the, the cornerstone of consciousness really boils down to free will. And that is something that is endowed to humans. Whether you have a biblical worldview or not, I think that that's something that we could argue that, you know, most people, I, I'm, I know there are people who have a more deterministic or uh, random chaos theory uh, worldview that may not subscribe to it. But I think most of us could argue that humans have free will. And that's really the the root of where consciousness stems. Yeah, And there are people that would argue that there is so much programming within us, whether it's just our genetics, our DNA, uh, the way we were brought up that we, so much of our activity is just some kind of reaction. And, and, but that's what I I think differentiates us from most of the animal kingdom. Yes. All of that is true. We have so much programming within us, our genetics, um, how we're raised by our, our parents or what have you, the, the habits we have, but the difference is we can actually, take the time and stop ourselves and do a different thing than our animal instinct is where as a you know a, a cat might see a mouse and go eat the mouse instinctually it's not sitting there necessarily having a thought process should i eat this mouse or no, no it just doesn't doesn't does it whereas we i might see something i want to do um and but i can actually control that and say well maybe i should not do that for some other reason outside of what my biology is sort of commanding of me 
Yes. And we also have the ability to uh, continuously choose. So we can make mistakes and then make different choices in our future. Mm -hmm. We can recognize we did something that maybe it would have been better if we had made the other choice or that the next time if we we were to do it again, we might make a different choice. So, uh, and we have redemption. So I think that that's really a big difference and that that's what a lot of free will is about. So, I mean, if you do have a biblical worldview, then, you know, both sides, both, uh, both God and Lucifer require you to choose, Mm. right? That, that part of the whole, that's the whole story of Genesis, right? That you have to choose. And that was part of why. So this is a whole Gnostic discussion because a lot of the Gnostics will argue that God is inherently bad because he's withheld knowledge from humans. That That's that esoteric knowledge, right? So they're angry at him because he's limited man. However, he limited man, this is if you subscribe to that worldview, but the, the, the premise behind it is that you wouldn't have free will otherwise because if you only had the choice of good, you're not choosing. Mm-hmm. And so he wants you to choose and he wants you to choose him. But the same thing for Lucifer. And this is why, you know, with a lot of their systems, they're opt-in systems. You know, I bring up the example of, of course, we can't find the exact connection. Um, so this is definitely, you know, still speculative. However, it is just very interesting that LifeLog, you know, was shut down for breaching the the Fourth Amendment. It was a violation of the Fourth Amendment on uh, February 4th, 2004. And Facebook went up February 4th, 2004. For very interesting coincidence. Oh, it's probably just yeah, yeah. Totally, One of those totally. things, right? <laughs> of course. I mean, the fact that Incutel and all of these other uh, military-industrial complex organi- uh, entities were involved is just you know totally a coincidence. But coincidence aside, the big difference between those two is that LifeLog was a uh, forced operation. You know, they were and, and also covert, whereas Facebook made it cool and trendy and you opt in. Well, of course I want the world to know everything about me. I'm going to put up all my pictures, all of my information, and you know, then I get to share it with the world. So you choose that, but that's mm. part of the loose fairy model. You choose it. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, a, I think that's a big part of where, from where consciousness stems is this choice, that, uh, this free will component. And it, it's interesting because I, I mean, I, I never thought about free will. I mean, I was one of those people for a long time that was kind of like, nah, I never would say atheist, but probably really. I was very agnostic at least, but very agnostic, you know? And sure. I, I think that's one thing that always, I always had that, but it's because I never spent 10 minutes even thinking about it or asking anybody right. about it. And that was familiar right. with the theology behind it. That's the real reason. But I always just thought, yeah, well, so it doesn't make any sense. Why would all this bad stuff happen? Why would people be allowed to go do bad things? But right. like you said, if, if we're not allowed to do bad things, then there's no meaning to the good things. And then there's no meaning to anything. And then what are we doing here? And maybe that's a useful attitude for the people that sort of run things today. Yeah. And I would argue, honestly, like regardless of whether or not you are religious or whether you subscribe to this worldview, uh, the, the concepts are still very valid. You know, this idea of having free will, this idea of having freedom of consciousness, this idea of being able to differentiate good from evil and making a conscious choice to, to choose one or the other. And also to battle the good and evil within us, which I think is a huge part of the battle. I think that's a huge part of, of the battle of humanity, right? Is that, you know, it's very easy to look outside and, uh, you know, point fingers at others and to point fingers at what's what's happening out there. But to look within 
and recognize, you know, that we all have our demons that we battle and to, you know, consciously try to overcome those. I think that's really the, you know, in many ways, that's the journey of life. And I think if everybody took that action, think about how uh, elevated the collective conscious would be. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying it in a new age kind of a way. I just mean it, you know, that if so many of us were to take that approach to life, then we would be as a species much more elevated. And I think we would actually have a uh, much more awakening and rejecting of this kind of great reset type or ty tyrannical measures that are occurring. Yeah. And it's, it's such a great way to look at things that it's, it's difficult. It's probably just a daily battle, but like, cause it's so easy to see like, you know, some, uh, purple haired, you know, you know, not that I don't care about purple hair necessarily, but you, it's so easy to just lump someone in as an enemy. See purple hair, a nose ring, screaming, screaming about trans, whatever, and look at that person as an enemy and say, look how evil and terrible they are. Um, but you can also look at it another way that they're also a victim of, of a lot of stuff that's been pumping towards them in society. Possibly a lot of, probably a lot of drugs they've been pumped with since they were a teenager. Um, I'll definitely a lot of propaganda and so to just look at anybody that's on that side as an enemy and as evil and wrong, well, there's evil and wrongness there. Absolutely. But is it sure. there? Is it them? Is it them? Who's the human that's wrong? Or is it everything that's been influencing them? And how to make that distinction is, is, a, is a pretty difficult one. But it's it's a better way to look at things. And it's a, it's a daily struggle for me because I have the same reactions. You know, I, I see something horrible or, a, you know, a kids drag show. But I think that's part of it. That's part of it, too. I, you know, it's, 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 again, putting us back in that, that wizard circle. They want us arguing and, and it's part of all this chaos no matter yeah. what side we're on. Yeah, they do. Um, I, I mean, I would argue that the agenda behind a lot of these things is inherently evil. Uh, oh, so would I, I yes. <laughs> yeah. right? I more mean like, of course, the people behind it, behind it are yeah. just straight up evil, yes. But I, I more mean like the average well, person that's this, caught up in this thing along the way. This is what I always say when, uh, yeah, we can, I mean, the programming, and that's one of my, like, in terms of research, one of my passions is really, just, you know, the this the psychological warfare uh, tactics and, uh, and the social engineering of the masses. But I think that with individuals, it's, you don't, because people always ask, like, you know, who's driving all of this and what. Uh, you know, are, are the people who are doing these things, are they all, you know, evil and coordinated? And I think that, and people also ask a lot of times about like Satan and is he real and all this. And I, my, my response to that is regardless of whether, whether he's real or not, there are people who worship him. Yeah. And there are people who serve him, even if they don't necessarily know they're doing it. You know, this is the same thing about like when you talk about things like controlled opposition, I hesitate to use the term because somebody can be serving the, their, the result of their actions can be at behaving as controlled opposition, but they could be completely unwittingly doing so. They might not be aware because they're, again, inside their wizard circle. So they don't necessarily know, but you can serve the satanic agenda without necessarily being a Satanist, right. you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I know anybody that's a, a Satanist in, in any, what we might call the classical sense, but uh, I could probably think of a lot of people who are serving, say, probably including myself, you know, I mean, in, in, in ways, cause that's, that's kind of the whole point is that it's, right. it's a daily struggle. Um, and you know, this is all stuff that's sort of like a new, new dialectic for me for the last couple of years. But since you brought it up a few times and it kind of seems like you're filtering things through that, that, uh, th that, uh, the biblical sort of point of view, have you always, yeah. or do you subscribe to that point of view or are you just using it as, as, as a, as a filter right now? 
So my religious journey, I guess, is pretty interesting. I mean, I, I'm from a Jewish family. I was not raised with religion. My dad, who is the only one in my immediate family who was bar mitzvahed, and he did it so that he could get Brooklyn Dodgers tickets. Uh, <laughs> that was the deal he made with his parents. So That's a very he, Jewish thing. I was, I was raised similarly. So I did oh, actually have a bar mitzvah, but besides that, yeah, I mean. He what? I did, I did actually have a bar mitzvah, the only difference, but I know I know what you mean. Right. I was raised, it's the more, yeah. it's the cultural, familial, uh, you know, Judaism more than like we're actually going and right. practicing anything. Totally. And my dad at the age of 11 decided he was an atheist. So he actually decided he was an atheist prior to being bar mitzvahed, <laughs> but he, uh, he agreed he would do the bar mitzvah so that he could uh, get these season tickets to the Brooklyn Dodgers. But so he was an atheist. My mom is more agnostic. You know, she, she always says, I wish I could believe. I, I, my response to her is always, well, you can. <laughs> That's your choice, you know? And she's like, yeah, no, no, I wish I could. I'm like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> like, you choose. But, you know. Mom, so we can have it. this conversation all day, but you can. <laughs> you can, exactly. You can choose. Um, but I understand what she's saying. Like, the, she feels like she, it would be nice and it, it would be comforting. And so she, but she wrestles with it internally. For me, so because I grew up with that and I, when I was about nine, came up with kind of my worldview because my grandfather, who was very much like a, a surrogate father to me in a lot of ways, you know, my, my father was there alive and very present, but I was very, very close to my grandfather. Uh, he actually offered his eye when they found out, you know, that I was born with a cataract. So, you know, my, my grandfather he was going to give very, you his eye. Yeah. They, they, Can you even they do that. <laughs> No, they, okay. they didn't know he asked, though. but he asked if they could, that's a you know, really sweet offer. <laughs> yeah. He was like, it served me, you know, <laughs> um, and he had beautiful eyes. So yeah. A, but so that's just to give you a sense of like how close yeah, we were. Yeah. And uh, when he passed, I really wrestled with, you know, I, I guess kind of the big questions, you know, the meaning of life and is there a God and all of those sort of things. And the, the worldview that I, uh, you know, came to, uh, you know, that resonated for me, uh, was much more aligned with kind of a quantum physics type of a, uh, premise, but I, I didn't know that at the time I wasn't like, you know, read up on quantum physics, but that now looking back on in hindsight, that's really kind of what resonated for me. And, but in over the past two years, I've definitely, uh, been much more immersed in reading. I'm actually in a Torah reading group currently. And I don't know. I don't know that I have like a specific, the one conclusion I've kind of come to is that I do feel like there's a lot of evidence for a creator that seems to really resonate very strongly for me. I, I don't think the random chaos theory makes a whole lot of sense. You know, I used to, people used to argue that, uh, I used to hear people argue that there's, you know, equal evidence on both sides. And actually now I feel like they're actually, that's actually not true to me. I think that there is more evidence to support uh, the theory of there being a creator because so many things are just not random at all. And so that resonates, but I struggle a lot just to be really honest with, you know, very organized formal religion mm -hmm. that because I see uh, with all the research I've done, the tops of all of these institutions, it doesn't matter whether it's religious institutions, churches, synagogues, you know, mosques, uh, it, it really doesn't matter what religion it is, what government it is. The tops of them are all super corrupt from what I can see. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of dogma and a lot of, uh, it's a very, there's ritualized practices in all of them. And they're, I'm not a, uh, 
I'm not very good at like group think. I'm not very, I'm a very uh, dissident thinker, <laughs> you know, in general, it's kind of like, you tell me something like why? <laughs> and uh, that's, that's kind of my reaction. I'm like, but why? So I have a hard time with you telling me that I have to believe, you know, in a rigid kind of system, systemic kind of uh, format. So yeah, so I, I, sorry, that was really long-winded, but I struggle with organized religion. I also know that the, uh, the, or the format of religion, the premises of all of these institutions has been really corrupted and infiltrated. Uh, certainly since, you know, like 550, we could go back. So anything before that, maybe we could start to look at. But there's also just so much What's the significance in, of 550 specifically? Uh, that would, that, wasn't that Constantine when they, it, with the Vatican, I want to say, when they redid a lot of the uh, books? Okay, they rearranged uh, yeah. things. Or they did away with a bunch of them. I, I have to go back and look back at exactly what it was that I, but I remember that year. I have to go back and look at exactly what the significance of, you know, but I, I'm pretty sure they restructured and there was an infiltration at that time. So, but I know what, regardless of that year, there's been so many different uh, periods where there's been, you know, infiltration. We can see it today uh, where, you know, a lot of the, original, even just studying the original text, so many of the texts have been removed. And why? Why have those texts been removed? And why are they not uh, part of the mainstream uh, biblical readings today? Even in and, an innocent way, even if there wasn't corruption, which there certainly is, and certainly people that manipulate things along the way, even just from the innocent, somewhat more innocent perspective of this stuff was in ancient languages that we can only and sometimes attempt to translate into like English how we talk. Like a lot of the meaning just gets lost. And but of course, there's oh, a lot of sure. a lot of not so innocent changes as well. well no, there were a lot of non not so innocent, but there absolutely I agree with you. There's also just mistakes. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know what happened a thousand years ago. I don't don't know what happened a hundred years right. ago for sure i wasn't there and now you people know, are so arguing about what happened two years ago or in the last two years so i mean i think the COVID stuff and all of this stuff opened up a lot of things to me like we can't even agree on the present we can't even agree exactly. on what's happening right now so how could we possibly know that two thousand years ago three thousand years ago stuff? exactly but the other point i did want to make was that even when you look at uh now, of course, this is the big question because the, we have the recordings of the Bible, the actual written Bible. Uh, but then, you know, if that's the worldview you subscribe to, then you would argue that that predates the record that we have. However, we have uh, records of a lot of uh, belief systems prior to that recording. And there seems to be common themes among all of them. There are just kind of centralized themes. And so then it becomes really difficult for me to say, well, only this one way is correct, right? There must be some kind of, a, you know, absolute truth that we as humans are still trying. There's so much we just don't know. Mm -hmm. And there's so much we're trying to figure out and we're piecing together or cobbling together these, you know, artifacts from history that, you know, there's lots omitted, innocently just left out. There's a lot lost in translation, as you pointed out. And then there is corruption on top of it. So, sorry, it was really long-winded. Well, a lot but of I factors, just... yeah. I mean, there's so, that, that's what makes the whole picture even more cloudy. And that's, I think, um, I've always been someone, and it sounds like you're kind of similar, that like, I always want to get to the truth of things, the truth yeah. of the matter. And I think the hardest thing along the lines of some of this stuff is, yeah, there's there's people and things that will be said that I'll hear that will ring true to me. And I'll think to myself, sure. this feels kind of true, but it's hard right. to really know that. And that can drive you nuts if you're someone that always wants to know the truth. Like, you know. Yeah. 
And when it comes to religion, there's just so much dogma and it's a, it's so like it's one way and that's hard for me. So, you know, there are certain aspects of, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Judaism just because it's older, there's a lot of aspects of it that really resonate for me. Certainly you know, now that I'm reading the Torah, I think, I think the Bible, regardless of what your worldview is, whether you're a complete atheist or, you know, you subscribe to a belief system that's completely foreign to it is a very valuable text. There's just tremendous uh, wisdom and morals and uh, knowledge and information that's imparted in it. I, I don't think that any harm can be done by reading it. You know, that doesn't mean you have to take it as face value. I know some people do, and I respect that. But I think that, you know, some people treat it as a literal word, and some people it's a, more of a, a guide. And I think either way, it's beneficial. So. So for you, are you kind of just in the in the place where you're just you're finding the value in, in stuff where, I'm, where you I'm see it? I'm discovering. Yeah. I mean, I'm on the journey. I mean, I'm really just on the journey. I don't claim to have. I know there's an element part of religion is having that faith. It's a blind faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certain religions that uh, in Judaism actually uh, asks you to question question everything, including the existence of a god, including the religion itself, uh, and that's kind of where I'm at. I'm in that space of I'm trying to learn. I'm questioning uh, the notion, as I said, of a creator seems to resonate with me more and more. Uh, as you know, certainly over the past few years, it's resonated much more. I will say that regardless of where I'm at, it does look like the Bible is, seems to be playing out. Now that could be because there are there are actors who are uh, fomenting it and uh, wanting it to play out, and it could be because it is you know the predictive uh, text. I, I don't have the answer to that, but. Either way, it seemed pretty evident that it's playing out as written. So I, you mentioned something um, pretty important, I think, to sort of looking at things, looking beyond politics anyway, and that is that you know, because a lot of people, the last stuff I, I dive into the, on, on this show is more looking at um, some sort of occult stuff, esoteric type stuff, like, like we've talked about, but not necessarily in the sense like at least that's not my intent anyway, is like, look how weird this is or look how cool this is or something. It's more like, this is what people believe. And you kind of mentioned before, like you don't have to believe in it yourself. You don't have to think that there's uh, a God Moloch that if you sacrifice babies to, they'll give you power. You don't need to think that stuff, but you at least need to recognize if we're going to actually get to, but what's behind all the politics here, you have to recognize that other people do and they clearly do and they clearly act on that belief and i think that's a hard bridge for a lot of people to cross over to because to to take that step you have to actually sort of embrace like some weird stuff <laughs> i don't know how else to put it you have to embrace the bohemian grove you have to embrace spirit cooking um but to not embrace it i've never seen anybody really deny that stuff they just kind of poo-poo as conspiracy because it's the, it's almost the only way to cope with it if you're not going to be if you're not going to be able to have that good and evil grapple with that good and evil question in your mind I think that's what it comes down to is that if you if you actually look at this stuff and you you want to grapple with it you have to grapple with that bigger question of good and evil which is a tough one sometimes yeah I think it is really tough for a lot of people and I think it's also really dark and a lot of people don't want to look at that. They yeah, don't want, they want to, to go to the barbecue that. and like see do what's best for their kids and get them into school. And I don't blame them, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that's, sure. I, it's not me. I, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely delve into some pretty dark stuff. Mm. I, you know, I have a bunch of categories, I guess on my podcast. And one of them is the satanic ritual abuse. I've interviewed mm. many survivors and, uh, 
you know, one of the reasons I think it's so important is because, of course, first and foremost, we want to be able to help the victims. We want to protect the children because it's very real and it is very, very dark. And it's, you know, if we can do anything to help them, I absolutely want to. But I also want people to understand that this, they're, they're not impervious. This affects everyone. Because this is kind of the, it's the underpinnings of what's driving the world right now. This is what's driving the battle. I do think it's a spiritual battle. And, you know, as you said, regardless of whether or not you believe that there there is a Satan, there are people who really do worship and really believe that they're going to uh, achieve power through black magic. And so, therefore, they enact rituals. They, uh, you know, bargain with the devil, uh, quite literally. And uh, that's why we do have things like Bohemian Grove, where they leverage power. You know, it's a it's a, an actual field, the science of leveraging power. And this is why things like back, blackmail are so effective. This is why secret societies exist, because they're effective. Uh, this is why the pedophilia agenda is uh, so rampant, because it, it is a way of leveraging power and leveraging uh, blackmail over people. Um yeah, so it's really important for people to understand that also they utilize these tactics which uh, induce trauma-based mind control. And these are things that have become weaponized against the masses, not just specific targeted individuals. So, Do you ever think that even, because th this is as someone who's sort of been in the, I guess, conspiracy world for a long time, not not in what I do in media-wise now, uh, but like just in my own sort of free time, I, yeah, I, I've been yeah. down all the rabbit holes. And I, not anymore, because now I've tried to look at things a lot differently, but there was a, a time when you you learn about so much evil and so much bad stuff and go down so many rabbit holes and you start to think, how can there be, and you can really get to a nihilistic place with it um, if you're not if you're not careful. Uh, and especially a lot of the topics you've covered with the satanic ritual abuse, I mean, stuff like that is, is so dark. So how, how do you, as someone who's like really deep diving this stuff and brushing up against the darkness, I guess you could say, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, whether it's spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, how do you, how do you keep yourself? Cause you seem like a very positive person. So I don't feel like you're falling into the abyss here. How do you keep yourself sort of, uh, on the up and up? I feel like people ask me this all the time <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm a happy person. I ultimately, I have faith in humanity. Uh, I don't really know that we have much control. Oh, so you do have over... some faith then, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I have faith in humanity yeah. for sure. And I mean, I guess I do have some sort of a, a faith in uh, the outcome of the world. I, I don't know that we have much control over the outcome. I just don't know. Uh, but I, I really believe that the, a noble cause is always worthy of fighting regardless of the outcome. And I think it human, as humans, it, it is our job to do what we can to, if, to bring, to shine light, to, uh, you know, bring goodness, to bring the awareness. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like you, you, you only, you can only control what you can control. And I think that knowing the dark, it makes you appreciate the light mm. so much. So Right. It's like if you if you if you've had really deep pain, you you also know really tremendous joy. So I I think it, it it's I'm just not a surface person. That's just I'm a very curious person. So it's for me, I, I don't get caught up and I mean it can be hard, especially if I'm hearing somebody's personal story. I can get very emotional and have tremendous empathy for their experience and of course have a you know deep sense of despair for what that means for the world. But ultimately I feel like there's 
there's a light as well. You know, people often use the term spiritual battle, but I think very few people really grasp that that means if, if they're often focused on one or the other, it's like the white hats have it, they're in charge or, you know, the dark, dark forces are, are running the world and it's all doomed. And if it's really a battle, then that's not true. The truth is that they're both, both forces are fighting. Both have to coexist. And so, yeah, I choose to, in my personal life, be surrounded by, you know, people who bring me joy, people who are, uh, you know, forces of light and uh, do things that fulfill me. So, yeah, I think that's all we really can do. So exactly. Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad you're out there doing it. Um, you know, there, there's so many, I think, especially nowadays, as more people become aware of this stuff, like there are so many sort of dark rabbit holes, like I said, you can go down. So I'm glad there's some people out there that are have, have a more positive take on it. Not, not necessarily a positive take on what's happening, but a positive outlook on what they can do about it. Because like you said, yeah, there's we can address all the evil. We can look at all the bad things going on. Um, but if, if, our, if that's all we're doing and we're not actually looking at what we can affect, then we're just going to get lost in the nihilism. And when you turn it back and you realize, okay, so that's all going on. What can I actually do? Yeah, I can talk about it. And we should talk out against evil things we see we should bring things to light of course but at the same time you got to look what can i do in my own life you know what what can i do to actually affect things around me so i'm glad you're having these kind of conversations on the courtney turner podcast so uh you're gonna hop over (laughs) in the smoke-filled room with me we'll get a little weirder in a second but first uh why don't you just let everybody know where they can find the courtney turner podcast i got pretty smart listeners they'll probably figure it out but feel free to plug that and anything else you got going on (laughs) well i will point out that i spell my name a little unusually so it it is courtney but it is spelled Courtenay. So C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y, Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R. That's the easy part. Dot com is where you can find mostly everything. That will link to all the different platforms that I'm on. I'm pretty much everywhere. My new YouTube is pretty new, uh, and it is under a different name. It is uh, the initials of the Courtney Turner podcast. Truth Sleuth is the... uh, uh, you knew YouTube handle because I was kicked off. And then uh, my Twitter is also a new one because I've been kicked off. And uh, things happen. The, our sa- yeah, right. Our savior, Elon, has not reinstated my old handle. So uh, I'm at Kinetic Courts on Twitter. I'm at Kinetic Courts on Instagram. I'm pretty active on both places. I have a Telegram channel, the Courtney Turner podcast. But you can find all of it on my website. That's probably the best place to. And that'll link you to all the audio platforms and to all of my uh, affiliates and video platforms as well. All right. Well, Courtney Turner, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it and keep up the great work. Thanks for coming on my show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Courtney Turner. I really enjoyed talking to her. If you enjoy this program, I can pretty much guarantee you're going to enjoy the Courtney Turner podcast. She gets into a lot of uh, similar areas, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the happenings in the world, diving into the conspiracy stuff, or at least not afraid to do so, uh, spiritual matters, this sort of thing. Uh, it's right up your alley. So I really want to recommend checking out the Courtney Turner podcast. You know who actually introduced me to Courtney Turner was another friend of mine whose podcast you really got to check out. And I was just on his show a couple weeks ago. His name is Tommy Sammons, and he hosts the Year Zero podcast. That podcast has been going on for years. I've had several conversations uh, with him over the years, and you know, one of the great things about podcasting are the connections and the people that you get to meet. Uh, 
connecting to people like Courtney Turner, who I, I lived, we, we were in LA the same time. Uh, we probably never would have connected or, or crossed over in our circles were it not for podcasting. Uh, same with Tommy Sammons. Uh, he's a great guy, someone who I've really come to call a friend over the years, and he hosts a fantastic podcast that I was recently on. So I want to also encourage you, once you're done with today's episode, once you've hopped into the smoke-filled room segment, once you've gone and become a premium supporter of the Mark Claire Show, uh, you're going to want to go and head over to Year Zero. Just search for the Year Zero podcast podcast and the episode with me is called a new reality uh with mark claire so i think you're really going to enjoy that conversation i talk a lot about uh, the ways i've changed over the last couple of years what led me to doing this podcast and sort of getting into a lot of the discussions that i've had with my guests on this show so i really want to highly encourage you to check out year zero with tommy sammons of course check out the courtney turner podcast check out everything and make sure you get these extended premium editions guys for as little as eight smackaroos a month you get two to three hours of extra content you get the smoke-filled room segment which is at minimum an extra 30 minutes with every single guest sometimes more with chris Knowles. we did an extra hour uh you also get the mark's monthly musings bonus show in which i give you sort of my insider personal thoughts on all of the the uh, episodes of the past month as well as looking ahead to the next month. So my premium supporters get a ton of extra content, uh, a ton of insider stuff, and it's only going to grow for there as I continue to grow the show, as I continue to get more and more support, uh, it's going to help me to continue to put more and more into this and grow this thing. So I really do appreciate every single one of you for tuning in, uh, for checking out my conversation with Courtney Turner, for hopping over like you're going to do right now to patreon.com slash Mark Claire show, uh, or over on Rockfin. If you're on Rockfin, I got everything over there too. Subscribe star is how you can get yourself a free trial. So if you just want to check it out, if you just want to get yourself uh, a week to dive through all the content and say, is this really worth my $8? I've got that for you. So head over to Subscribestar. I've got all the links for you at markclair.com. M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R, markclair.com. That's got everything you need, including the link to our Telegram group. I don't mention that nearly enough. we got a fun Telegram group. Uh, we have a lot of fun conversations in there, so be sure to head to markclair.com. Join the Telegram group. Get involved in that conversation as well. That being said, I look forward to seeing y'all next week. Until then, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> <laughs>